Hello, producer Theo here. Just before we get started with this month's podcast, I wanted to tell you about our upcoming behaviour-driven development conference, Cucan Space Charlotte, which will happen on December 12th and 13th. Cucan Space is a great opportunity for you to learn about BDD and meet others who are taking a similar journey as your organisation. You'll get to rub shoulders with some of the most renowned BDD experts, including Cucumber's very own Matt Wynn and Steve Took. We will kick off the conference with a keynote from Ellen Gottestina, who will speak about how you can use structured conversations to refine your product padlock. So if you want to find out more about the conference, check out our website, which I've linked in the show notes. Hello! Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. And for this episode, I'm Matt Wynn. In fact, I'm usually Matt Wynn when I do these episodes. Um, for this episode, I'm joined uh, by three special guests, um, Dave Anderson uh, and Sinead Shackley from Liberty IT in Belfast, who uh, I've been working with over the past couple of years, and, um, and Paul Shepard from Deutsche Bank. And we're going to be talking about the kinds of issues that happen as you try to transition big organizations towards these practices that we talk about on this podcast, agile software development, BDD, things like that. These, these great collaborative practices, which we know work. Um, how do you get them to work at scale? How do you get large organizations ticking and, and working in these ways? Um, so we've seen some, some great uh, challenges as we've worked together at, at Liberty IT. And um, I know Paul's been been taking on some uh, some incredible uh, work at Deutsche Bank as well. So I thought it'd be great to get everybody together to just share their stories, really, and um, uh, and and share what we've been learning with with each other and with with the listeners. Um, so maybe it'd be good just to go around uh, each of the three of you, and you can um, tell the tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you're doing at the moment. Um, and then we can get into the into the conversation. Should we should we start with um, should we start with Paul? Happy to start. Um, thanks, Matt. So uh, I'm Paul Shepard. I run delivery platforms and services at Deutsche Bank. Um, really, that jobs around helping uh, create an environment, kind of process, tools, people where um, great teams can do great work. Uh, I feel I should probably manage expectations somewhat after that introduction. I wouldn't claim that we're going to that we've solved all of those problems are going to do the big reveal with all of the answers through the course of this conversation but certainly through 20 years of working in financial services which is an environment where you know heavily regulated and and, and lots and, and control is clearly important you know learned a, a thing or two along the way and still learning and uh, interesting to share some of that and certainly to hear from Dave and Sinead of what they've been doing as well. Cool uh, I'll go next uh, my name is Dave Anderson uh, Director of Technology for Liberty IT um, so my background is software engineering for oh, for far too long, but um, my kind of role within Liberty IT is like we're, we write a lot of the software for, for Liberty Mutual, um, and I really look at the technical strategy and the technical direction of Liberty IT. We're, we're with 550 people here in Belfast and Dublin, and um, part of looking at the future of where we're going, you need to have a, also have an eye on where we are currently and to make sure that the engineering practices, the technical excellence and the, the, the general quality of software development is, is high enough. And, and clearly 
a big part of that is is how your kind of agile organization works. So one of the things that that we've been looking at recently is, is the past couple of years with with the help of Matt is what does that agile organization look like and feel like and what are the things that need to happen and that becomes quite interesting when you're part of a, a fortune 100 company okay so i'm sinead shackley the organizational capability and methodology manager in liberty it um, i've been in this role now for about 11 months it's a new role in the organization and I'm currently working as part of the LIT incubator team. And what we're responsible for is emerging tech, business transformation, and identification and scaling of strategic capabilities throughout the organization. So many buzzwords in there, Sinead. I love it. Just reading from the job spec, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what does it mean day to day, though, Sinead? Like, what what kinds of interactions are you having with with people, other people in the organisation? Like, are you, are you dealing with, with teams or or at the executive level? On a day to day basis, I work very closely with our engineering teams, really about. Um, building out the key capabilities that we think we need to move the organization forward. So we've spent the last couple of years uh, focused on uh, some of the technical excellence practices, agility type practices and techniques. And it's really about helping to position LIT and our teams uh, for future opportunities. So it's almost about keeping an eye on what's coming down the line, what's what what's coming along from a future looking perspective and making sure that we're being able to we're able to close the gap on any of our current capabilities. So it's a bit of a as is look at things and a to be look at things and, and sort of closing that gap. Yeah, so it's interesting talking about the technical capabilities thing, I think, and I'd like to get dig into that a bit um, if we may, because I think one of the things that strikes me uh, that, like, I guess particularly um, Dave and Paul have got in common is you are both individuals who've got a lot of influence in it in a big organization um, who thoroughly believe in test-driven development. And I still think that's quite a rare thing um, at the moment. And I, w I wanted to hear from you from your perspective about sort of like what uh well actually just here here you're making the case for it really and how you explain it to other people in your organization who don't get it yet and and why why it matters um and and what sort of challenges you've had you know getting people to 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 see the benefits of that sure more than more than happy to uh to take to that yeah take up that challenge so and, and I, I guess i can talk generically across the industry because you know i've worked at a number of different large uh, large banks and and you see patterns as you move between them and and it it's almost a little bit uh, uh i think you know disappointing that um something that you know that, that was conceived a very long time ago and it's shown great value isn't now just you know the, the way that we do things um you know I, I don't believe in any absolutes and i, and I don't you know and there are certainly circumstances where uh, teams have taken other approaches um what but 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 yeah, so I, I think if you look at any large organization, you could put all of your teams on a on a 
on a maturity curve, you have some at the right hand side who are off and away and producing wonderful technology and um, and our job is to help kind of, you know, support and, and promote and, and call them out as, as points of lights for others to emulate. And, and then, you know, a lot of other teams that are on that journey. Um, I think with test driven, the, the thing that tends to hit home with people when they come across it for the first time, or some of those things are um, that it really, um, it, it's not about testing. That's, I guess, one of its, um, one of the things that does it is this disservice. It's, it's more about um, a combination of design, software design, and making sure you truly understand um, the thing that you're about to do before you do it. Um, so when I have conversations with, you know, maybe graduates or interns or people that haven't been introduced to test driven um, before, and but they but they they built technology, right? They write code, they can make stuff work, and and they say things like, well, you know, how can I write the tests? I don't know what it does yet. I haven't written the code. It's like, okay, well, let's just you know take that sentence and and examine it a little bit. Um, so so I think using it as a thinking tool to challenge your understanding of the thing that you're about to do uh, and then seeing the resultant code which tends to be cleaner and clearer in its intent are, are two of the things which people tend to get quite quickly once they they've spent some time with someone who, who does it well um and and been, been shown the way a little bit yeah i think that's very insightful i mean i, I totally agree um for me it's 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 quite straightforward it's it's really about the why it's the goal and I was quite fortunate when I first started working in the, in the mid nineties for a telco, a telco in Dublin. And um, my first tech lead said to me, he says, I'm not letting you write any code until you show me you can test. This is before like TDD and XP, et cetera, came out. So I've had that mindset forever in my career. So whether you call it, you know, test driven through a test first, behavior driven, your behavior, um, product driven outcome, what's your outcome, you know, goal driven, Whatever way you want to phrase it, it's a, for me, it's the conversation with an engineer is what do you, do you understand what you're trying to achieve? And can you codify it in a test? Now make it happen. And, and that very simple sort of suggestion completely flips the natural kind of solution oriented um, um, outcome for, for many or approach that many developers have and engineers have maybe coming out of college. And this kind of thing about just write a bunch of code and throw it over the wall is so completely opposite to how I've always thought. So what I find in with, and I think Agile is great because it allows those conversations. Agile is about, it's about the people interaction patterns. And if you're in a position where you can say to, from an engineer to senior leadership, why are we doing this? And if you can't get an answer, I think you should challenge that. So that, the reason why I love TDD, because it brings that right into the work, work, the sort of workspace of every single developer. So I think as a mindset, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's been a huge influence on my career. And any good engineering company needs to have that same influence. For me, it's, it's, there's, there's no question about that. One of the things that you said that I really liked is about the pattern, the thought pattern, the mindset. Um, because if you put TDD to one side, you can actually apply that mindset further up the stack as well. So at, 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 I guess at its lowest level, it's this function I'm about to write, I'm putting in two numbers, is it going to give me the number that I want? But you can take that all the way up the stack to this piece of, you know, this next product enhancement I'm about to start a journey on. How will I know that that's been successful? How will I measure the outcome that I expect to have off the back of that piece of work that I'm going to initiate? So that thinking pattern of examining the measurable outputs and making sure I understand those before I initiate something happens. It can happen in the small, but it can happen in the very, very large as well. Yeah, it's like a habit of starting with the end in mind. Yeah, and you, you scale that up to, you know, to some buzzwords. 
human-centric design, you know, customer-oriented outcomes, service design, all these really fancy buzzwords. I mean, at the end of the day, they just revert back to that basic thing is who is trying to use this and what do they want? So um, why do you think it hasn't taken hold yet? I mean, I, I've often thought about TDD as being a bit like a spirit level. Like, in you know, in, in the building industry... Uh, centuries ago people used to be able to put together buildings without spirit levels um, and they were okay you know and they could be maybe two or three stories high but they were a bit rickety Um, and then we invented spirit levels at some point and we were able to build much taller buildings um, and much straighter ones and, and so on and it's like now no one you know you might knock together a garden shed without a spirit level, but basically no one would, in, would embark upon a building project without using a spirit level. And, you know, if you think about TDD as being like, like a, a tool like that, like, and, and software is still a pretty young industry. So it's fair enough that we're still kind of figuring things out and learning about what the, what the good practices are. But, but I mean, from, from your perspectives, like why is it so hard for organizations to grasp the benefits of these practices and embrace them and, and get on and start doing them? What do you think is in the way? I think, I mean, I think we still have a hangover from, from previous years when that we, 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 you know, I always liked the, or it's fascinating with the idea of a software as a factory, a software house as a factory. We need to churn out widgets and we need to make that as simple as possible which is a completely broken way of thinking about software. I mean, the analogy I always use, it should be like a school. It's a learning environment. And, you know, writing software is difficult. You can't simplify it. You can make it easier. You can, you know, you need to, you can't simplify the process. You have to increase the knowledge and skill of your, of your, of your colleagues. So TDD is difficult. It, it doesn't, you can't hide anywhere when you're in TDD. Um, so I think that's a, difficult concept for for every company to, to to follow you know it's it's you're you're hiring smart people to do a smart job you don't oversimplify it and sometimes people the people who push back for tdd is they want a sort of a, a more a more simpler way of, of running the work so I, I do think that tdd exposes some of the complexities in our jobs and, and we need to talk about those complexities because stuff is it's not as easy as it sounds I think as well, Matt, some of what we see is that um, there's a general lack of understanding and, and real solid TDD experience in places. And sometimes we've got um, engineers at, at quite senior levels that really, they haven't used TDD before and they're a bit unsure how to do it or what and when and then we're bringing in this as a new even though it's been around for a while we bring it in as a as a new practice something that we think is valuable and they're almost a little bit hesitant to admit that they're unfamiliar with it right Um, it's like threatening yeah 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 yeah. and there's a level of um vulnerability i suppose in a way to open up and admit that, that you know that they're not that experienced with it uh, and that's okay you know we, we just it's about learning we don't need to know all the answers to everything but it's about being vulnerable enough to say I'm not actually overly familiar with this but but i recognize its value and i want to i want to learn about it and bring it into the organization particularly in an organization of our size um we would have some people in that um with that little bit of a mindset that we would have to overcome yeah 
I mean, I think I yeah, absolutely agree with all of that. I, I've seen all of that. I mean, it's to to um, to the point that was made. I think it's much easier to use a spirit level and to to get something straight than it is to do TDD well. Um, and and we are still a young industry. You know, we're we you know we're, we're very very proud of of what we've done with technology over the last sixty or seventy years. We put people into space and map the depths of the ocean and curing diseases. But we're still children playing with toys. Really, if you look at us as a as a profession um but that's why we have through dialogues like this you know helping each other to mature and, and do it better I, I think that there's there's some other things on top as well i think you know people get influenced to do things in in kind of not just in the logical sphere but on a emotional and social um, dimensions as well and engineers and i put myself firmly in this category tend to over focus on the logical of why and and the other aspects are important as well when you're trying to motivate people to do something. And, and when you meet people that are test infected, it tends to be that their entire team or that entire product um, works in that way because there is that social connection to it. And, and it's just the way that we work and we see the value and we the value in it and we feel an emotional connection to it. And so, you you know, that that you tend to have these kind of islands of goodness uh, around it. And then it's about pointing other people to that and trying to emulate. Um, and also, I think certainly um across you know the industry that i spent my career in we don't always do enough to equip technologists to be able to have the value conversation about why we do some of those things with the people that we build products with or for um and that's important as well so you'll still from time to time come across a conversation um, with a with a sponsor and if you talk about something like pair programming and and you'll you know get in, you'll get inferences along the lines of what well, isn't that you know two people doing one person's job and 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 we need to equip people better to be able to have those conversations to say to, to help people understand that you know the thing that you're looking for isn't more code and therefore more hands on more keyboards is more impact the thing that you're looking for is quality impact solving the problems you're trying to solve actually with as little code as possible which requires people to do a lot of thinking before they build and that's why having you know four eyes better than two on some complex problems gives you a better outcome in the end not a not a worse one. So that that those kind of skills to be able to articulate the value of some of those things, um, you know, is variable as well, and something that we kind of need to do more, I think, to invest in as an industry. Yeah, that's interesting. We probably take it for granted those of us uh, uh, practiced at doing it and don't think about teaching it as a skill in itself. The 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 articulation of the value. Yeah, I think that's really fair. So. It takes me to thinking about. So it's interesting. You you um, talked about that curve that you could you could put. Um, Put different teams on and i remember you know not that long ago with dave and sinead um standing in a room and doing that with the with those 500 folks at, at liberty it like just talking about sort of where the where the patterns were and where where we saw people being at um so i think it'd be interesting to hear from all of you about strategies for spreading those you know those pockets of of good um and and spreading that out more widely across your organization like what are the what are the techniques that you've you've tried maybe ones that haven't worked ones that have worked for getting getting the good to spread because it's obviously something that you're you're sort of strategically trying to do yeah well i mean i can certainly talk i've been trying to introduce test first for many 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 years in organizations and i think what we what, what i've learned and myself and Sinead have a, many sort of different attempts. Um, the thing that, that we recently hit on a few, a few years ago that Matt, that you helped us with is 
being prescriptive about TDD is a difficult sell. If you're very prescriptive about any of the technical practices, there's always someone it doesn't apply to. Um, so we kind of spun that and we thought, can we create a goal-driven framework that we would very clearly communicate the goals and provide people with some practice and techniques that help them get there? And then we thought, well, once we do that, we'll, we'll need a mechanism to help teams keep a cadence of, of, of you know, tacting towards those goals. So we come up with this concept and, and, and you, we, were, you were a great support in that called High Performance Engineering which is really just, it's a way of talking about continuous improvement within teams. And we, we, we set it up that we, we had an idea of what good looked like, which is a really good team, you know, needs to be of high technical excellence, high autonomy, and delivering customer value. And we had some kind of measured things around that. And we encouraged teams to almost gamify that. And we give teams the space and support to identify their own goals. Like, what's their widely important goal? And what can they go after? and try and give them the headspace to do that. And every different team has a different thing that they think is most important. Like what will give you the most payback? Like we noticed some of the innovation type teams, like they don't really need to do TDD because they're doing a lot of POCs and they're doing a lot of, you know, exploration. So it really depends. So um, when we had that idea of widely important goals, we, we had a really nice framework that we that Matt did you suggested, which has been a huge help called the four disciplines of execution or 40X we've been calling it, which is a fantastic framework to kind of get your head around lead and lag measures and what you can actually, what outcomes you can drive. So when we started rolling that framework out across, what, you know, about 80 teams or so, mm -hmm. yeah. um, we almost, we didn't really want to assess teams for how good or bad they were, but you could see the technical practices of the teams based on what they were improving. So you could really you could kind of map where people were on their journey, and it's it, it's absolutely not about judging teams. It's not about setting a high bar. It's about going to teams where they are and helping supporting them progress up that curve. So it's been a really interesting way. Once we've established that goal-driven framework, it lets teams open up to where they're struggling, and some teams are really struggling with testing, and then we can give them the support that they need. You know, some teams have impediments that they can't get past. We can help them with those. And then it also gives teams a platform to share success stories, which improves collaboration, which, you know, encourages people to do that kind of peer-to-peer peer -peer team coaching. So I think having a, a loose goal-driven framework at an organization-wide and the senior leadership of that company support, that framework, I think, has been, has been really useful. I would agree with all of that, Dave, and uh, the minute we've rolled that out across the entire organization at this point, so back to your point, I think we're at 80 teams now across engineering operations, and we've even got leadership and support teams utilizing the framework. Uh, we've got considerable success to the extent now that our US peers have reached out to us, and we've started to sort of evolve it even further into the, the larger Liberty Mutual organization, which is, you know, on the back of the the, the successes that we've been seeing. Now, it hasn't been uh, easy for all of the teams. And we have had a few groups come back and struggle in places with the framework. And But it's mostly been around setting what we call the wild, wildly important goals. Some teams have 
that goals they have selected have not been wildly important. So they've struggled to gain the traction on it. But I think uh, that's been a learning for them. And they very quickly call that out and they they self-reflect on why this hasn't been successful. And they're able to put their hand up and say, do you know what? That wasn't our most successful goal. And that's why we struggle with this. So they almost go through a, a learning curve themselves as they go through the process. Because you've actually been a continuous improvement guru at, at LIT for a long time, Sinead, haven't you? And and so this was an, a kind of another way of coaching teams to do continuous improvement on themselves, really. So rather than having a one-size-fits-all metric, like let's let's measure every team's cycle time, it was about letting them set their own metrics, figure out what, from based on where they're at, what would be the next incremental thing that they need to do to to get better. Yeah, you're right, Matt. Uh, my background is in continuous improvement. The reason why I think this framework has been as successful is because of the the mantra, I guess, that we built around it, which is by the team for the team. So we have really taken it to the teams where they're at. Uh, they drive their own goals. We have a set of, there, there is an autonomy and alignment piece to this. So we do have a set of organizational expectations, uh, but really from a problem solving or, a, or an opportunity identification, that's that sits in the team's um, space. They're the ones closest to the work. They're the ones closest to the customers. You know, they, they see it um, better than I do or better than the org does. And, and that's where the success has come from. Yeah, and I think there's there's two really important things in there. I mean, the first is technical coaching, teams doing their own technical coaching. You give them a platform, they say, they ask each other, is, is this good enough, guys? What, what, do we, what do we think? You know, so it really highlights the importance of technical coaching in teams. And and second, from the, the continuous improvement teams of kind of yesteryear, actually like and I joke about this, is like the police. You know, the, the quality team land in and say, okay, team, what's your continuous improvement goal? Team go, um, 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 cycle time, we've reduced it by 10 minutes, and then they disappear. This puts the ownership of that in with the team. So I think it's really important that, like, she has got a fantastic team, but they don't need to be, like, you know, holding hands of teams all the time. It's like, you know, say, guys, here, here's, here's the framework. You improve what you need to improve. And then teams have ownership of their continuous improvement as opposed to being a, a central thing that's, that's, that's imposed on them. So we thought that was a that was a very important distinction they make, especially now with agile teams empowerment and stuff. I mean that's critical. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, there's so much good stuff in there. I think um, you know it really resonates. I think that you know from the conversations that, that I tend to have with people that do similar work at other other firms, it, there does tend to be patterns that emerge. So the kind of and, and context is everything, right? So the you know, the, it's very tempting, I think, especially these days when there's a lot of um, investment in marketing frameworks and recipes. And if you just apply this, then everything will be agile and you'll be super DevSecOps level, whatever. Um, it's very tempting for senior managers because the truth is that this is just hard, right? Do it, because it is so context specific. There's no recipe. There's no one right answer. And, and I hope, at least I hope no one ever discovers one because if it does, our jobs will become far less interesting. Um, but so instead of replacing that with teaching teams to be able to improve themselves, giving them the tools to be able to visualize a system of work and understand where the next batch of constraints are and, and the tools to be able to alleviate those constraints um, and then go and help just when they get to things that are true organizational blockers, as opposed to follow these 10 steps. As long as your stand-ups are exactly 15 minutes long, then tick, you know, you're, you're good. 
Um, they tend to be more the patterns that I see of transformations that are, that are more successful and, and much more than that, have the emotional buy-in of the teams that are going on that journey because they can then focus on things that they know are important to them and they can be the beneficiaries of the results, the improvements themselves in their system of work, um, which will be different from, from, from their neighbors. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we try to do is rather than just train people in those technical skills to train people to be able to train other people. So we take those kind of points of light team and put them through train the trainer processes because that culture of learning is, is really important. So rather than bringing in, you know, agency X or consultancy Y to do some classroom stuff and then go on, you, you, then, you then retain that ability to, to, to have that coaching capability internally and the training capability internally. Um, so putting learning at the heart and, and continuous improvement, I think when I, when I talk to people across industry and the different firms I've worked in where good things have really happened, things that have really changed, the, you know, the, the output that people are achieving, you know, that there's been a, a commonality of all of those threads. You make a really good point there, Paul. And funny, one of the things that we've we've done it in Liberty for a while, but I guess we've sort of formalized it or, or, or put more of a structure around it this year is the concept of um, teaching others or we had a pretty loose um, loose framework of uh, engineers in the organization sort of on an ad hoc basis, bringing people together and doing a little bit of teaching. But this year, our in-house workshops have all fallen under my remit. And we have uh, fantastic engineers in the organization who have the ability, the desire and the passion to teach and coach other teams. So we have reduced our reliance on external providers for things like impact mapping, discovery and framing, BDD, TDD, agility. And we're running all of that stuff in-house. And what the feedback has been so positive because what they're getting is they're, the teams are getting the, um, the experience and the expertise of the, the talent that we have in the organization. But the bit that we're, they're getting that an outside organization can't give is our company's context and we're able to teach with that in mind, that's priceless. And again, another example of something we've had a lot of success with this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's brilliant to, to hear. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's really exciting stuff. I think, and the other thing that it gives the people that you're investing in giving them the skills to be able to train and coach is that sense of mastery, acknowledgement of the mastery of certain domains or certain techniques or practices, um, which for them is really motivating as well. And it's always really nice you know, when you see people that wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to be expert in a, in a topic, as many people are experts in topic, they don't consider themselves to be experts because they know the breadth of all the stuff that's still to know, right? But but to put those people in front of other people and see the impact it has on others, it's motivating for those that are getting that investment, but it's motivating for those that are giving it as well. So in terms of engagement and retention and those things, um, it's far more effective than throwing four-figure numbers, uh, name your favorite consultancy a day uh, to come in and read ge generic scrum or safe, you know. <laughs> Although, of course... Your favourite BDD training provider is still essential. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. No. I really. Are, are there any I, others? Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like hearing this because I think um, it's actually one of the things that pisses me off about uh, you know some of the some of the companies that we work with is you know we're sort of three years in and it's like oh you again you know haven't you learned how to teach each other this stuff by now. Um, can't we be talking about something else? That, and and I, I feel like some organizations just get kind of addicted to 
using outsiders to come in and teach them stuff rather than celebrating the talent that they've got in and, and experience that they've got in house. And, and, um, and I think, I think, you know, you hold on to people better, right? If you give them a progression that includes being able to share all of the, all of the stuff and the, the, the experience that they've gained over the years, I think it's really, it's a really nice thing to be able to do when you get to that, that point in your career. Um, so it's, it's great if the organization's celebrating it. I really liked what you said, Paul, about sort of just making it a learning organization. I remember you've, you've, I've heard you say similar things, Dave, as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think just very quickly on that, um, there's something about that, you know, some companies will say, well, we're going to give a consultancy a bunch of money and they'll tell us something, but you've got all your internal experts who know exactly the same thing. So that's something I've always been very keen on that listen to your own experts, you know, it's great going for external validation but you have the expertise in-house on many different things. So I think it's very important for the health of a, especially for a technical company, to, to embrace and sort of, you know, acknowledge their internal expertise. Absolutely. And Janaid's, you know, point about, um, about the, you know, driving that engagement through those people. I think the other thing is different people are expert at different things. So it's not just about, generic seniority or what level you are in an organization you know we had we run coding carters here where we have people that have only been in the organization a few years but whose low-level technical skills are very good doing coding coding carters for people far more senior for them because in that specific domain they're not as expert in in the understanding of the business domain Mm -hmm. or other things they may be far more expert but but i think sometimes when you think about seniority it, people get a bit one-dimensional, but actually everyone is expert in some things and novice in others. And, 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 and so it, we get to then reflect that in a, in a more nuanced way um, by recognizing some of that through different levels of the organization. And that's, you know, that, that's proved quite powerful as well. And there's a whole other huge conversation we can have there about seniority and hierarchy, right, which we haven't got time for today. That's, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I... I, uh, I I, I feel like we, we need to kind of draw this conversation to a close. Um, I, I just wanted to quickly ch- check in on a thing because you, you mentioned it, Paul, um, about this, this sort of systemic impediment. So this is one of the things that we noticed as we were going around the teams rolling out this, this uh, high-performance engineering framework at, at Liberty IT was that we'd run the workshops with the teams and often the, the biggest barriers to their improvement were things which were out with of their control, right? They were things that were the organization was putting in their way and they didn't have any authority to do anything about them. And it was really interesting because as we were going around all of these teams, we could see the patterns and see whether there were, whether there were those, um, th- those barriers. What I think was still a puzzle for me, and I don't know how, how you've, you've gone on and cracked it since, is you know, where, where we kind of almost build a backlog of those, those issues that need to be tackled and how we make that visible to the, to, and, and, and if you like, in the same way as we want teams to be accountable about their continuous improvement goals and, you know, and checking in and saying like, I've, we've, we've been doing this this month and this is how we're improving things, be accountable to the teams to saying like, this is the stuff that we've, we're doing about that issue that's, that's been getting in your way. Like, how do you, how do you kind of keep that information visible for some because some of these can be quite thorny political issues or, or whatever right they can be quite difficult yeah i mean I, I'm, I'm hoping dave and Sinead are going to give me all the answers to that one because i think well <laughs> <laughs> whilst we made some some good progress on some of them it, you know that that that's still a thing right um i, I think 
what we've seen that helps is trying to create philosophical alignment uh, behind the kind of world you're trying to create and some of the key values or principles that underpin it. So we have this um, saying at, at DB um, that we drew up with our control functions as well as our development teams, um, uh, like a tagline, which is ideas to production safely in a day. That We want to create a world where that's possible. And so whether you work in information security or production change management or or as a developer, you know, on a trading system or, or whatever, um, that's an anchoring point that we're trying to work towards. And for many teams now, that's a reality. Um, and obviously, we're, we're looking to widen that pipe. Um, I worry about the central list of all the blockers that other people will fix for teams, because that can become disempowering and bring on learned helplessness. I'd, I'd much rather with teams try and coach them to to gain the skills to be able to remove those impediments themselves because then it eliminates handoffs and it's more empowerment. But there are just some things that it's unreasonable for teams to be able to um, to, to, to remove you know, on their own. And so that's where this um, philosophical and intellectual um, uh, anchoring point for senior leaders in an organization to say, this is the outcome we're trying to create. What's my part of that? And, and when those blockers are presented, they can be presented in that context. We're trying to get to this world. How, do, how is this process that's important going to be evolved so that it can support this vision of ideas to production safely in a day? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I must admit the whole idea of, of, of blockers and impediments is is fascinating. And a quick kind of dialogue to where, what we've done. I mean, one of the things, the great things that Matt, that you brought into our company was the idea of using open space as a, as a way to kind of break down the silos. And that that's, I mean, that's probably another topic within itself, but we've been running those for about two years now, using open spaces as a kind of an unconference format. And one of the things that I introduced was this idea of a kind of meritocracy. And we always use the term, leave your grade at the door, leave your seniority at the door once you're in this, this kind of environment. It's everyone's opinion is, is, is valid and important. So that that got a level of trust that was that we never would have got in traditional company sort of hierarchies. Um, and then as part of HPE, we talked about impediments. And one of the things that I always said as part of that is you own the impediment, don't pass it up. You know, don't, you're not giving away your impediment to your, your manager, you're sharing it. You retain ownership of that impediment, but you're increasing the transparency and visibility of it. So that, that was a really interesting concept. Like don't kick it up the chain. You, know, you, you don't give it away. So then one of the things we've done recently over the past two months, is we've created this kind of insight room here in Belfast, and it's kind of we get together all the senior leadership for it's about a roughly about a ninety minute sort of session, and what we call an insights room. And the topic we talk about is kind of business development. Where are we going? And that's like you know like leadership and technology leadership, and 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 Sinead's team as well. And we we can talk about where are things going. So because teams have been sharing their impediments. If things are actually going to, you know, slow things down or actually in, impede where we need to go as an organization, it's very clear because there's that, that culture of sharing impediments. So like we don't actually have a backlog of impediments that we prioritize go through as we try and look for trends. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been a it's, it's more of a, of, a, of a transparency in the organization as opposed to, you know, passing the buck, I would say. I would just continue on and say that the early days um we we did try to do the centralized list and the centralized logging and it didn't work it just became a nightmare um as any large organization going through a transformation will attest to there are a lot of organizational impediments 
Um, the insights room that Dave has referenced, we've only really started on that over the last couple of months, but I think we've all recognized that there's a real power to that approach. We haven't quite got the design of it just right yet, but I think we all, we're all excited to go into the room and hear the, the really large, gnarly organizational problems that we need to clear um, in order for us to move forward. Um, again, it's not, a, it's not a centralized log. It's almost a space for conversation and at least we're bubbling them up and we're, we're having the conversation. And we do take some actions on the back of it, but I think it's probably the first time in a long time where we've had the key leadership of the organization focused on the really important um, gnarly problems so that we can get them out of the way for the engineering teams. Yeah, and as well, and just a quick point, I mean, that's we're a 550-person organization. The leadership of the company is in that insights room, and everything is quite like radical transparencies we try to achieve. And that's a room with glass walls and no lock on the door. So any employee can walk into that room, look around the stuff in the walls, and see what the conversation is. So for me, that's a level of transparency that I've never seen before. I think it's a level of trust as well. You know, we're all on this journey together. It's not about um, a, a senior leadership team or a steering team sitting in a room, you know, plotting the direction. Uh, there is a sense of openness and transparency and a feeling that we're all we're all in it together. Uh, we've all got to stay aligned on the, 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 the march forward, so to speak. Um, and it's led to a lot of hot conversations at times. But it's conversations and dialogue that needs to happen uh, for us to continue moving forward. Yeah, fascinating. I think the open space, I'm glad you mentioned the open space, because I think the the invitational and kind of responsibility, taking taking responsibility for your own uh, your own use of your time um, is that there's sort of like fundamental visceral experiences that everyone has at open space which if you're practicing that often enough as a group then just end up um leaking out into all kinds of other behaviors in the in the organization where yeah the the right people come into the room for things rather than the people who you know it might be their job title who ought to be there you actually get the right people coming into the room um, yeah, people are taking responsibility for de- tackling problems themselves rather than passing the book and getting someone else to, to looking to someone else to deal with them. So I think that's that's really um, really glad you mentioned that, um, Paul. Anything else to say on on this before we wrap up? Because I think uh, Theo's about to about to kick us out of the room. <laughs> um, look, plenty. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great hearing from Sinead and, and hearing from Dave. I think it's interesting to see the patterns and the commonality. I think that, you know, yeah. the, the thing that the most important thing for me is that with all of this stuff and all of the other fields that touch on it is to have teams understand why they're doing it, right? You know, if you're going to apply a technique or a methodology or a tool or a framework, understand what it is that you're trying to achieve when you do it and then measure and know whether it's the right thing or not. So I'm not anti-methodologies, but methodology for methodology's sake isn't helping you produce software, it's not helping your business. But if, you un- if your aim is to increase the, the, the flow of valuable software into production at a decent level of quality, then as you apply these things, un- go and measure, is it helping achieve that or not? And if it isn't, adjust.
Yeah, one of the one of the things that I I really thought was really resonated with me. I've seen a few 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 weeks ago, is Martin Fowler did a, a keynote at um, I think it was Agile Australia in August 2018, and he he talked about three things to be aware of in the state of Agile, the the the, the danger of Agile industrial complex, all these big huge methods to fix everything, the importance <laughs> of technical excellence in your company, which is you know number one, especially for us. And that whole idea of product thinking and products over projects. I mean, there's a list of three things. It's hugely powerful for a company to think about those. And I think if you're blindly following the process, you're just not hitting it. I love that idea, the the uh, industrial, agile industrial complex. Yeah, it's definitely out there. All right, well, thanks very much to the three of you for giving us your valuable time for this conversation. I'm sure the listeners have, have, uh, have really enjoyed it as much as I have. And thanks to you listeners as well out there. Um, don't forget to, what do you have to do? Like us on Facebook and uh, pick us up on SoundCloud. Is that right, Theo? Thanks very much, everyone. See you next time.